You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right, I'm going to welcome you back to your seats. If you find, want to find a seat, that'd be great. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, this will be Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Uh, if you didn't get one on your way in, there's still a handful I see on that high top table. We've got these e- or Ephesians scripture journals. If you want to grab one of these, take notes throughout the series. This would be a great way for you to follow along. Or if you're using one of those hardback black Bibles, we're on page 976. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to have that as a gift for you. So take that home with you. Use that. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. So Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Today's passage is 12 verses, but it is one sentence. That is 257 words, which is almost as long as the entire Gettysburg Address. If you wrote a 257-word sentence on an English paper, you can almost guarantee you're getting some red marks for that one, right? But that's bad English. 257-word sentence is bad English, but it's good Greek. Okay, what Paul did here is masterful and it is beautiful. It is one sentence in which Paul probably labored over. He probably wrote and rewrote, pondered and edited and thought about how to say what he wanted to say. In this opening part of Ephesians, this is less of a long discourse on theology than it is a poem of praise. Today, we are going to continue in our foundation series, and we're going to lay the foundation stone of praise and thanksgiving. Our series is called The Foundations of Faith from Death to Life in the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians, we are going to find many different foundation stones that will form a strong base for us to build upon as a church. And here's something we should know about the book of Ephesians in terms of its structure. The first half of the letter, which is where we are and will be for several weeks, chapters 1 through 3, is primarily about helping us to understand the good news of the gospel, that we have gone from death to life through faith in Jesus. Paul is going to answer all sorts of questions we might have about God and salvation and identity. And then in the second half of the letter, chapters 4 through 6, this is primarily about how we respond to the good news of the gospel. So chapters 1 through 3, understanding this good news, 4 through 6, responding. Paul is going to help explain how obedience, obedience flows from our identity in Christ. We want to live holy lives because we've already been made holy in Christ. That's the structure of Ephesians. And today we get this beautiful 250 sentence or word sentence to kick it all off. It's going to give us a compelling reminder of a reason to praise God. And what a great place for us to start in our series, by giving thanks to the one who brings us from death to life. And so if you have your Bibles open to Ephesians 1, go ahead and stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word, and I'll read for us from Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. The Scripture says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, 
making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Grab a seat as I pray for us. Father, we thank You for Your word. We thank You here this song of praise, even as we just sang this praise to the Father, Son, and Spirit. God, now, would you cultivate that in our hearts? As we open your word, God, by your Spirit, would you help us to behold the wondrous things that are found here? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. According, according to an article published by UC Berkeley, gratitude or thanksgiving is good for our brains. And the article said that this is true for us, whether we feel like we're in a good place or not. Sometimes we think if we're already well-functioning, thankfulness is good for the brain. But even it's true for those who struggle with mental health. The article says that those who consciously give thanks for their blessings tend to be happier and less depressed. Some of you have heard of something called a thankfulness journal even, where there's space given at the end of each day to write down some of the reasons that you're thankful. My wife Megan has one of these and has found that helpful. What scientists have found is that the conscious act of giving thanks has an impact on our brain chemistry and our function. And I find that to be pretty remarkable. If you want to be a happier and more content person, one of the ways you can do that is just to simply give thanks. God designed us for thanksgiving. And here's why that's relevant for our passage today. Because the first phrase in our passage is, blessed be God. Now, we don't use the word blessed like this, but you know, sometimes we think about being blessed as receiving blessing from someone else, receiving a good gift. In this case, actually, it means all praise to God. It is actually the way that many psalms start in the Old Testament, by giving thanks. And in this way, Paul, he's reading in the heritage of the psalmists, and to praise God is simply to acknowledge and thank God for what He has done. What scientists have found is that giving thanks for even the simplest things in life is good for us. Giving thanks for a home and shelter, a job, friends, food, they're all, these are all good things, and we give thanks for them. That's good, but the highest thanksgiving we could give, the greatest way that we can count our blessing is to thank God, to give Him all praise and blessing. And that's what I want you to hear today. That's what we're after today. That's, why, that's what Paul is after, our praise. He has penned this beautiful song of praise to our God, and through it, he's inviting everyone who reads it to praise God, to join in the chorus of thanking our God for His work in redeeming the world. And so, here's the primary message of the sermon. This is what I want you to hear. We have a never-ending reason to give thanks to God because of His intentional work in salvation. We'll see that God's work in redemption was intentional, it was thoughtful, it was proactive, and we can give thanks for that. And so it brings us to our first point, which is just we were made for praise. 
It's what we were designed for. The entire sentence is crafted by Paul here through the inspiration of God's Spirit to invite every future reader into the praise and thanksgiving of God. That's what we're made for. It's good for us. I was filling up my van with gas the other day, and Maria Menunos pops up on the screen as I'm filling up gas. If you've been to the gas station, you know what I'm talking about, right? As she does every time I fill up with gas. Even this morning on the way in, there she is on the screen as I'm getting gas. And I, I have wondered, how do you get that job, right? What a great gig. Like, come in and record 20 10-second clips to pester people at the gas station. We'll give you millions of dollars. I don't know. But Maria pops up, and the first thing she says to me is, want to know my newest life hack? And then she tells us about how sunlight's good for the body. And I thought, that doesn't seem new to me, but okay. But we're always looking for new life hacks. Well, today I have an ancient life hack for you. Thanksgiving and praise is good for you. It's good for the soul. You were made for them. They are an antidote for your anxiety, and they are a salve for your sorrows. And in our passage, Paul is giving us a never-ending reason to give thanks and praise. Now, to reinforce the purpose of this passage, uh, Paul actually uses this repeated phrase three different times, this phrase, to the praise of his glory. He uses it in verse 6, and it's a little bit different there, where he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. And then he uses it in verse 12, and again in verse 14. And each time he uses it, he's concluding a section of this Um, the sentence that he's given us, this song of praise, to remind us that this is about praising God. So he uses the phrase at the end of these three sections, each of these sections is dedicated to one of the three persons of the Trinity. Verses 3 through 6 is about the Father, verses 7 through 12 is about the Son, and then verses 13 and 14 are about the Spirit. This is a Trinitarian call to praise. We are meant to see here the cooperation of the Trinity in our salvation. All three persons of the Trinity had a role to play, and they coordinated their work to bring about the redemption and the salvation of humanity and all creation. And this Trinitarian aim of praise gets introduced right there in verse 3, where Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father, there we see Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see the Son who has blessed us in Christ, the Son again, with every spiritual blessing. And when you read that, don't think spiritual as opposed to physical blessing. Think blessing in the Spirit. So we see the Trinity show up right there in verse 3, and then we get this outworking throughout the rest of the passage. And the doctrine of the Trinity is one that is assumed by many, but also not always understood very well. It can be kind of confusing. Well, today, we don't just want to assume it. We want to acknowledge it and understand it and see that it is part of the reality and the reason for our praise. Now, just very simply defined, the Trinity is our understanding as Christians that God exists as one in three persons. One one God, three persons, distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. They are equal in power and perfection. They are of the same divine essence, but they have complementary roles in their relationship to creation and redemption. And I wondered, have you thought about this? Did you know that the Trinity works together in a coordinated effort to rescue and redeem that which was lost. It was seamless, flawless, perfect teamwork together. Now, we can often end up on teams and in relationships that feel dysfunctional, and that is not the case with the Trinity. It is perfectly planned, perfectly coordinated. That's what Paul wants to highlight here. He wants us to praise God because of the Trinitarian work of redemption. 
Now, I want to pull us back a little bit from the doctrine of just the Trinity, but to remind us of the primary goal of the passage today, to praise God. That's what Paul's after. That's what he wants for us, nothing short of our worship. And so here's my invitation to you today. Begin to cultivate a heart of worship and praise for God because of his work in saving us and redeeming us. The reality is that we are going to give our praise to something. We're going to give our affection and our worship to something. Our hearts are made for it. The question is not whether we will worship something, but what we are worshiping. Will it be our Trinitarian God or will it be something else? One of the greatest arguments in the past century for the theological principle that we will worship something did not actually come from a theologian. It didn't even come from someone who claimed a faith in Jesus, but from an American novelist who struggled deeply with depression and took his own life at the age of 46. David Foster Wallace helped us see this so clearly in his Kenyan college commencement speech when he pointed out that everyone worships something. He argued there's no true atheist in the world because we all worship. And so he went on to say, if you worship money, you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. If you worship your body, your beauty, your sexual allure, then you will always feel ugly. And when your age begins to show, you will die a thousand deaths before you finally die. If you worship power, then you will feel weak and afraid, always looking for more power over others to numb your fears. And if you worship your intellect, then you will feel stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And let me add, this is my words, if you worship religion, you will constantly be prideful or ashamed because of what you have been able to do or failed to do. Now, there's no indication that Wallace ever trusted in Jesus, but Wallace understood our propensity for worship. And it can feel hopeless, despairing, even desperate to find something worth worshiping. And if you can never find it, that's crushing. Whether in pursuit of beauty, power, religion, or addiction, we were made for worship. And today, I'm calling you to worship and to praise our Trinitarian God. Now, many of you will have barriers for making God the highest aim of your worship and thanksgiving. Some of you will struggle just to trust God that he's good, that he's worth worshiping because of suffering that you or someone that you love has experienced or because of the pain that you've experienced at the hands of those who claim to follow Jesus. Now, others of us just forget, right? We just need to be reminded over and over that we can praise God and why we can. Many of us will get distracted by competing idols, whether it be the shrine that we carry around in our pockets called a phone or the temple known as Target where we go to offer our sacrifice of money hoping that the thing we bring out will satisfy our hearts. But let me be clear, right? I'm not talking about just simple acts of gratitude for the good things that God has given us. That's a good thing, right? Thanking God for simple provision is good. But when good things become God things, then they become our object of worship and they will steal our joy and our contentment. Today, I want to call us all back to the praise of God for his proactive, coordinated, sacrificial, and loving work of redeeming us from the curse of sin. So now for the rest of our time, I want to look at these three persons of the Trinity and their work. So we'll see the initiative of the Father, the redemption of the Son, and the sealing of the Spirit. So first, the initiative of the Father. 
Here's what I, I want us to see. If you, if you hear nothing else about the Father, what I want you to hear is that he took the initiative in your salvation. You were wanted. He wanted you enough to act. It says in verse 4 that he chose us in him, and that word him there is for Jesus. He chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. Before God even created the world, there was a conversation among Father, Son, and Spirit, knowing that sin would enter the world and that we would be in need of saving. God the Father chose us in Christ, not because we were holy and blameless, but as it says at the end of verse 4, so that he could make us holy and blameless before him. Now, all sorts of questions start to emerge around what's become known as the doctrine of election, which just simply is a question about, did God choose us? Did we choose him? How did this all work? And all, what I'll say to you in terms of the question, did God choose us? Did we choose him? I'll just say yes, yes to both, okay? God chose us before the world began, and because he chose us, we are now able to choose him. Now, it's a bit of a mystery how God's sovereign choice and our human responsibility to go together. But for today, let me just say that if you are in Christ, God chose you. He wanted you. He desires you. Not because you were holy, but to make you holy. Not because you were blameless, but to make blameless. And now the next question that comes when we start talking about this choosing thing is, it gets very personal. Well, did God choose me? We wonder. And let me just say, if you want to choose God, then you can trust that He has chosen you. And you can respond with confidence, knowing that before the foundation of the world, God looked ahead through the sin of Adam and Eve. He applied the work of the cross to you. God took the initiative. Now, we get more of this language in verse 5, where it says that He predestined us for adoption as sons. And that noun there is a gender-inclusive noun, so I'll add daughters as well, right? He adopted us as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. To be predestined means that God planned our adoption ahead of time, and when God plans something, it's as good as done. He planned for your adoption in Christ. We were orphans in the world, and now we are family, co-heirs with Christ. In Johannesburg, South Africa, there's this little mission church that recognized child abandonment was a very real problem in their city. Babies were left in the street, discarded in dustbins, left in open fields or in public toilets. And this church wanted to do something about it. So for the past 23 years, they have helped 1,848 babies find families, hope, and healing. Now some of you are here today and you might feel abandoned. Not physically left in the street, but spiritually out in the cold unwanted because of past decisions, unloved by others' actions toward you. But I want you to know, God has taken the initiative. He is combing the streets, looking for discarded children to bring home. And I believe that he has chosen you for salvation. He wants you to respond. He wants you to trust in his love, to claim your identity as a child in the family of God. And do not be hindered about questions whether or not you're good enough for him to choose you, whether you've done enough for him to choose you. He's not choosing you because you're holy. He's choosing you to make you holy. And if you are feeling a desire in your heart to choose him, then you can be assured he has chosen you first. And because of that, as it says in verse 6, we can respond with praising God for his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
And now let's talk about the beloved, the son, and we'll see the redemption of the son. See, the father did not act alone in our salvation. The father initiated, but the son redeemed. And even as I say that, before we move on to talk about the work of the son, I want to be careful that we do not assume that the father or spirit aren't worked in the, or aren't involved in this work of redemption as if the division of labor within the Trinity is so hard and as if there's like silos in the Trinity. No, that's not the case. They worked in perfect harmony. harmony. It was coordinated effort. Father, Son, and Spirit worked together for our redemption. And it says in verse 7 that in Him, that Him there's Jesus, in Jesus we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, in order to understand this, I want to define redemption for you just briefly. This word is primarily used in the Bible to talk about purchasing back someone from slavery. One of the most significant and repeated stories that in the Bible that helps us to think about that is when God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. And that's the language that's used, redemption. He redeemed them from their slavery. They were in bondage and slavery. God heard their cries and he rescued and redeemed. That's what Jesus has done for us. We were in bondage and slavery to sin idolatry and sin are cruel masters. They will offer us something to satisfy our needs, but in the end, they cannot deliver and they will ruin us. And in our rebellion against God, our relationship with our creator gets fractured. As a result, we are orphans, isolated, alone, in darkness, but Jesus came to redeem us from that consequence, from our slavery and idolatry and sin. And the result is nothing less Then the unity and reconciliation of all creation, as it says in verses 9 through 10, he made us, or he he made known to us the mystery of his will. This is the revealing that he's doing here. He's made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose in Christ, in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time. And here's, here's the result, to unite all things in him. The end of this work is the reconciliation of all things. To reconcile means to unite that which was separated to bring into harmony that which was in discord. The last three years have revealed deep fractures that still exist within humanity. Political discord, racial infighting, slander, accusation, we see it all around us, the hatred, the vitriol that has has been expressed toward other image bearers of God. This is not God's desire or His design. And here's the deal. Christians, we are as guilty of adding, or we are guilty of adding to the destructive tone of the discourse that has dominated the public, private, and online conversations. Some of you are here today, and you struggle to praise God because you struggle to trust God because you've been hurt by someone who claims to be His follower. And here's what we all need to know. The vision that Jesus had in mind when he died on the cross to redeem us of our sin was not discord and fighting. It was reconciliation and unity. The primary expression on earth of this unity is meant to be his church, the bride of Christ. And so if there is anywhere that we should believe that unity is possible, it's here among God's people, among God's redeemed. Now that doesn't mean we won't have our challenges, right? We're not perfected yet but we desire unity together. That's the vision Jesus had in mind for us. And I thank God for the way that he has brought supernatural unity to our church over the last several years as we've navigated many challenging things. We need to know as we move into Northeast, though, that there are people around us who are suspicious of God's people because they have not always seen unity in the church. 
They've not always seen the unity that Jesus desired. They've experienced hurt at times from God's people. So our ongoing work together is to pursue that unity, right? That work's not over. If River City Church will be a place where Christ's vision of reconciliation will be lived out and experienced, if we will be a place where our mission is fulfilled to see weary lives renewed, then we need to keep fighting for that together, for unity. So even while we praise God for the vision of unity that's been promised, we work for it together. To the praise of His glory, as it says at the end of verse 12. And now we'll, we'll talk about the Spirit, the sealing of the Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit, and we get this clear description of His work in verse 13. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It goes on in verse 14. He is a guarantee of our inheritance. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time on the Spirit today, not because we want to devalue Him in the work, but actually because next week Dalton's going to do a deep dive on verses 11 through 14 for us. Okay, but let me share that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of the inheritance that we have in Christ. And here's why that matters for us today. Because you might struggle to believe at times that God still wants you. You might hear this and say, okay, well, he chose me, but does he still want me? You might struggle to believe that your adoption is secure. You might wonder if God's going to abandon you in the street somewhere. You might wonder if you'll ever be holy and blameless before God or if reconciliation is possible the Holy Spirit has been given to seal those promises. When you struggle to believe the truth of verses 3 through 14, when the evil one starts to whisper condemnation into your ear, and when you start to be tempted to find your satisfaction somewhere other than God, it is God's Spirit who brings to mind these realities. It is God's Spirit that helps you endure. It is God's Spirit that keeps you for eternity. God's Spirit helps you remember that God chose you. He wants you. It is God's Spirit that reminds you that Jesus redeemed you, that your sin and shame do not have the final say, that their power over you has been broken. You are no longer enslaved, but you are redeemed. It is God's Spirit that helps you see the vision that Jesus had for the reconciliation of all things. He helps you to believe that it's possible and to work for it because that is God's desire and design for His people. The Spirit will help us do the very thing that this passage was designed to do, to praise and bless God. So give thanks for the Spirit inside of you, for God's Spirit as a deposit, to the praise of His glory. Now, as I've prepared the sermon this week, I've been convicted of my own perspective in this. I've realized that my heart has not been defined by praise and by thanksgiving, but by bitterness and by frustration, in particular at the physical pain that I've been in lately. Lately, my body has just not been working the way that I feel like it should. And some of you have reminded me that I'm just getting old. Thank you for that. I, I turned 38, and it's been made known to me I cannot claim mid-30s anymore. I am late 30s now. So, yes, my body is breaking down, right? Um, but in October, I was feeling good. Like, I had run the furthest I had ran in over a decade. I was sleeping well. I weighed less than when I started college. And if I'm honest, my physical health maybe was becoming even an idol. Maybe I was being prideful about that. Well, that has been stripped away. So starting in November, you know, we got early snowfalls. I'm shoveling. My, my lower back started to hurt. And then in December, Megan and I went snowboarding, and I cracked my rib. And I wish it was a good story, I really do, but I fell on a run called Big Bunny, okay? <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, how's that for a story? And I just was careless, right, not paying attention, and I fell, cracked my rib. In January, my family got COVID, and then after that, the back set in, and it has been like debilitatingly painful. It truly has. And what I have found is I've been growing frustrated. I found someone to help me. They've diagnosed what's wrong, and healing has started, but it's been slow. It has been slow. I thought it would go so much faster. Megan has had the privilege of hearing me moan and groan around the house for the past several weeks. And the reality is, in all of it, I'm really, I've been bitter and frustrated. And I've, I've been frustrated with God. I've been taking it out with impatience on my family. Even this week, I was making dinner on Thursday, and you know you're standing at the counter, and you're cutting stuff, and you're frying stuff. And by the end of that, my back hurts so bad, I just want to crawl in a hole. And then I'm like barking at my kids, you know, get to the table. And Megan just graciously reminded me, we don't want our pain to be taken out on our kids. And I just was realizing what was defining my heart was more my pain and my frustration than praise and thanksgiving. And I say that not to dismiss the reality of pain. We experience pain and frustration in life, and we should be aware of that. But I don't want that to define me. I want praise and thanksgiving to define me. So as I've gone through this this week, as I'm thinking, I'm going to encourage people to have hearts of praise. The Lord has been reminding me, I want to have a heart of praise. So I'm in this with you. For anyone here today who feels like their perspective has been defined by their frustration and their pain. I'm not going to tell you to ignore it or forget about it, but I want to invite you. We are being invited to turn our hearts and our minds toward praise. Maybe you need a thankfulness journal. Maybe you just need to be more aware of things to be grateful for. And when you stop to call to mind things to be grateful for, maybe you're sitting with your thankfulness journal and you don't know what else to write. I just want to encourage you to take out Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. We have an endless list of reasons to give thanks and praise to our God. This is an ancient life hack worth trying. Blessed be God because of his work of redemption. And may God cultivate in our hearts gratitude and praise this week. May we see the remarkable work of redemption that God has brought. And may we respond by praising his glorious grace. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.